This is Comic Geek Speak, episode 1705, Ant-Man and the Wasp Movie Review. I'm Chris Everly. I'm Shane Kelly. I'm Adam Murdo. And I'm Matt. Welcome, one and all, to our movie review of the latest Marvel offering, uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp. It is a little late. We know the movie did come out earlier this month, and we're at the end of July now. But, you know, summertime schedules are, and logistics are very difficult for us. But <laughs> better, better late than never. Uh, that's may, right. And it's possible this episode does, does not have music uh, to it. Again, that's my doing because I'm still learning uh, the process from doing all this from a remote location as we're not in the studio, which would be more often than not the case uh, this summer. So please bear with us as we uh, work out all these kinks. I may be off for the summer from teaching, but I have a, two teenagers in my family, so that means automatically I'm still very busy. So bear with us, folks, and we'll uh, work out all, again work out all these kinks. So, we're going to talk about the latest uh, MCU offering, and we're thrilled that Matt has joined us. Here, here. Indeed. Well, the episode just started, so we'll see if you have that same notion at the end. <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah, those my babies, so it won't last forever. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, per tradition, why don't we start with our uh, sort of our initial uh, thoughts, and we'll start with Matt, since he has been on the show in a while. What do you think, brother? <laughs> Uh, I thought it was very enjoyable. Uh, I think it's been written multiple times. Uh, it was nice kind of pullback after Infinity War, and that's not taking anything away from the Infinity War, but this was kind of like a nice uh, cool down, gearing up towards the next thing. Uh, there was a lot of aspects that I really enjoyed. I liked how this seems more of a um, – I, I, I hate when people criticize the MCU by saying they're comedies for kids, they're family movies, but out of all of them, this, this franchise – in the uh, in the whole series seems very family oriented, um, and I liked how they they ran with that instead of kind of run away from that. Shane, yeah, I agree with that. I I thought it was great. I enjoyed it just as much as if not more than the first one. I love the family aspect of it. I I totally agree. I think um, Ant Man and Ant Man and the Wasp are, have both been very good um, catch your breath, light hearted fun movies to go see in between these overlying huge arcs which have these huge consequences coming and this gives you a nice ah relaxed moment enjoy it and then you go on to the next brother murdo well i liked it more than the first one although as uh, i think uh, you and i mr deemer covered in our last comic talk so that's not saying that's because ant-man the original ant-man remains my least favorite uh, mcu offering to date um, but, uh, it, it, yeah, this is definitely better than Ant-Man. Uh, the, uh, size-changing visual effects slash sight gags have uh, been elevated to the next level, as one might expect. Um, so it was kind of a rollicking good ride. You know, the requisite amount of action and humor is thrown in there, as uh, the other two guys mentioned. Um, uh, I, I thought, uh, we could have used a little bit more Wasp, since her name is in the title. They kind of need to live up to that a little more. 
Um, and I, I, I thought the humor was a little bit uh, derivative and forced at points, but that doesn't mean I wasn't laughing. Um, so, yeah, just a good, enjoyable popcorn fluff kind of stuff. You know, it, it's uh, faithful to its parent genre, you know, the action comedy heist movie. And uh, the filmmakers are remaining true to that. It's uh, just carving out their own little generic niche in the broader Marvel cinematic universe by sticking with that formula. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, a step forward for this uh, – uh, what I consider to be a lesser uh, franchise of the Marvel Cinematic Firmament. Ah, that was majestic. Thank you, sir. Uh, mm. I enjoyed it thoroughly. A uh, couple reasons, just, just, to, as, just we'll expand on this as we go along, but I love Paul Rudd as an actor in general. Uh, I think he perfectly fits the Scott Lang they've, they've created for, for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, but the highlight of the movie for me was... Evangeline Lilly as the wasp. As the wasp, first of all, she kicked ass throughout the film. Like I loved how they showed <laughs> they they made the wasp powerful. Like they showed that she's formidable, um, not someone to be trifled with. Uh, it was it was a real pleasure just to, just to, they showed her combat prowess. You know, it's not like the wasp was agonizing about which outfit I'm going to wear. Like this is you know this this is hardcore you know the kind of wasp who could lead the avengers like we saw in, in the comic books in like the 1980s and 90s so i really enjoyed that i enjoyed her dynamic with with paul rudd i think they have great chemistry i'm a huge michael douglas and michelle pfeiffer fan so it was great to see both of them uh in the film and um the other thing i'll say is the first post credit scene, and the second post credit scene was the biggest waste of time of any post credit scene oh, probably in the history of Marvel Cinematic Universe. That made, that made the Jeff Goldblum scene, scene from Ragnarok, that, that made that scene seem like it was vital. Um, yeah. But the first teaser scene, you know, I, I think it's possibly could be, that scene I think might be enormously crucial to what's going to happen in Avengers. That's just a gut feeling on my part, but what he might bring out of the uh, well, we'd call it the microverse. They have to call it the quantum realm. But yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I just have a hunch that that might be very significant. So, well, and and as much as after Infinity War, I was talking to the kids, and I know amongst ourselves, I'm sure. Uh, I can't remember if we did it on the movie review. I'm sure we might have. I I called what was going to happen. I mean, not, I can't imagine anybody didn't. Where you'd see everything leading up to it, and at the end, either the very end of the movie or the very end in an extra credit scene. You'd have some repercussions from Infinity War, um, which is exactly what happened. However, I was so engrossed in watching the movie that when the extra credit scenes came up, when the credits started rolling and I'm waiting for it, I wasn't even thinking that that's what was going to happen. I was waiting to see what kind of tie-in they were going to have from everything that happened in the movie, which they still kind of did anyway. But when the actual fade happened of the people i sat there and i gasped and i felt silly because i figured this is what was going to happen yet i was so focused on the movie i completely forgot to even think about what was going to come next in the extra credit scenes that's just effective storytelling <laughs> what to say i did like how they saved it for that moment it felt oh, very yeah. one of my big pet peeves about the events when i stopped reading was they went so if you, had, if you were reading spider-man to get any of the tie into the main event, there's a there's a mini series that you're reading instead of in the ongoing books. And I understand they don't want if they have a story going on, they don't want to interrupt it. And then also if they want to trade it, um, you know, you're going to have those couple pages that kind of make no sense to the the arc of that trade. But 
it felt very old school where you have this ongoing story and then something just kind of taps into what's going on in the rest of the Marvel universe. Like I think it was in Inferno where Spider-Man, there was just some, I forget what the storyline was necessarily about. I know it's the mutants, but um, Spider-Man's going through New York and there's kind of like a little touch of kind of what's going on in the background. So if you were interested, mm-hmm. you could follow it through. I yeah. did like how it didn't overcompass the story. It felt more just like a, a separate title that wasn't directly connected at this point with it, but you're kind of getting a little a hints of it. And I, I maybe even to some extent similar to Civil War initially, where you know one issue Spider-Man is going into this strange device in the park, and in the next issue he's coming back in a black costume. So it's one of those where it's k- kicking you off to the next thing without really interfering too much of the main story of what's going on in that yeah. particular book. Yep, I like how the story was not overtaken by anything that happened in Infinity War. Yeah, I agree with that, and, and that's what you know because the Ant the Ant Man has his own little universe, so to speak, and yeah. uh, I think they did a nice job of carrying that through, but also reminding you uh, in ways big and small that it is still part of this this larger tapestry, so to speak. Um, what you guys <laughs> What do you guys think of how they used the Giant Man version of the character in this film? liked it i thought it was all right um i i think it was a little bit goofy but i expected a little bit more out of it but it was still funny um out of all the things that i felt was forced i think that was one of the more forced things to just be able to say here's giant man in ant-man and the wasp but it it wasn't bad i mean it, it served its purpose yeah i mean i i enjoyed that i didn't mind the giant man stuff it kind of got annoying a little bit where his suit would fluctuate, where he would be like in mid sizes. Um, and I understand Hanks said, you know, this is a work in progress. So I didn't mind it that, you know, he might not be able to change size when he wanted to, but kind of like changing part way and then just kind of freezing. I found that a little bit annoying when they kept going back to that throughout the movie. Um, I thought they irritated me more than the giant man stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to agree with what Matt just said there. The uh, malfunctioning, fluctuating powers thing uh, got a little bit on my nerves there. That's another example of uh, what we're saying about forced humor in the movie. Um, and, and it's also kind of feeding into what I'm, I'm, I'm calling an emerging trope of the superhero sequel film, which is uh, the super, you establish the superhero and his or her powers in the first one and then make the powers go haywire in the second or third movie to show you what the hero can do when he or she has to compensate for the loss of those powers. And here they played it by for laughs. And that whole scene where uh, uh, Scott Lang had to uh, infiltrate his daughter's grade school to get the, uh, the suit prototype back and he was stuck at the height of a, a third grader or something. That's, that, that was pretty much purely stuck in there for the shtick. Uh, we, we probably could have done without some of that. It was grading on me too. What did you guys think of how like they had a matchbox case with all these different cars? Um, I did like, like that. Oh, I love all, that. all the different things that they had, like they really you went above and beyond using the, the um, pin particles this time. And I, I actually thought that that was interesting how you're carrying because if I remember one of the probably the main stuff I remember reading with Doctor Pym was when he joined the West Coast Avengers as Doctor Pym, um, and he basically just had a lab coat on and he'd have all his stuff on him that he would just you know increase in size as he needed it. And yeah. I thought that was kind of neat how this is similar and it, it p- played for some nice visual effects. Of, of things that they could use, things that they could do um, in this movie. Yeah, I agree with that as well. Um, love that it was a, like a, a Matchbox Hot Wheels case. Um, 
just something that that as a kid you always dream about carrying around this matchbox case and be able to enlarge any car you have in there that was that was perfect for for the purpose of the movie um the only thing that i question about with with hank pym and the pym particles and going up and down is as he's creating all these things he and or hope have to try them out and in some cases utilize them and then hank went in after his wife which is perfectly acceptable that's what i expected to happen but at what point was it okay for him to do that now because the whole reason he didn't do it for the first movie was because it messed up his head his brain in some fashion so i'm wondering if they figured a way around that or if he was just real willing to risk it in this case because it was going after janet you see i figured it was not just so much the pim particles of going up and down but the physical demands that the first movie would require of ant-man to do yeah, at maybe. his age he just wouldn't have been able to to do to have that all the capacity because you figure at any point when they were shrinking and enlarging he wasn't really fighting at all he wasn't doing no. anything yeah. running or anything like that so that's kind of how i justified it is okay in the first one he couldn't do it because it's just a young man needed to do this this heist and this one he could do all the stuff and maybe it has some type of effect but not to the degree that exerting that type of energy would have in the first one yeah that could be uh, and chris i have to agree i absolutely loved evangeline Lilly as the wasp um i i could have had just a movie of her as much as I love the chemistry with her and Paul Rudd, and, and it's great that they teamed up, and, and I really I love the whole movie, um, I could watch her be the Wasp all day. She was just fantastic. Did, did, did you guys watch any of the um, like interviews or um, like behind-the-scenes stuff that's on YouTube or the internet or anything? Not as no, not really. It, it, not was, it, it became very apparent to me that she was very – there was no one more wanting Wasp to be in this movie than, than her. And like she was very, you know, when I fight, I want to come out or I'm, uh, you know, a breathing heavy that my hair doesn't look perfect. It should be in a ponytail because that would make putting on and off the helmet more more reasonable, more accurate. Um, mm-hmm. She got really into the role. And the other side was uh, Payne Reed said it was very important that when they were doing this script, it's Ant-Man and the Wasp. It's not Ant-Man dot 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 and the Wasp that they essentially both were. They were partners in this. It wasn't a sidekick. They were both um, basically they're billed together. It's just because it's Ant Man sequel doesn't mean that he gets top billing and she gets second billing. They yeah. are. That's why some of the promotional stuff had it swapped of who actually is featured in more prominently. And we also and have, rightfully go, so. Go ahead. I'm sorry, sir. Go ahead. No, no, just rightfully so. She she plays just as big a role in especially this one. Um, she deserves it. And we have to remember also that you know. All these characters are steeped in Marvel's Silver Age for the most part, but naturally they have to update that in, in a, for a 21st century sensibility and sure. audience. So, you know, I mean, we all know that the Janet Van Dyne that Michelle Pfeiffer played is enormously far away from the original Wasp because they, they make yeah. she's, she's a scientist in this version. You know, she's someone who survived for decades in in this uh, in this quantum realm or, or microverse. You know, so naturally the Wasp we're going to see is not going to be worrying about you know. Her makeup and you know which costume she's wearing, which is, which is like a lot of the jokes in in the original version of the character. Now, to be fair though, if you study the comic history of the Wasp, she eventually becomes the leader of the Avengers, mm-hmm. and and I think that's what the the, the, the template they really borrowed from when they that we said this Wasp uh, in the film. Like, and she said, like she says to, to Scott, like you know, if I'd been there, you wouldn't have been captured. Like when you were, I love there, that part. Oh, yeah. America. <laughs> so, Absolutely love that part. What did we think of? 
I mean, it's it's off screen the fact that Scott ran off without telling her and Hank that he was doing that. Well, go ahead. Well, I, I I'm okay with it because it's it's not like they they knew that all these other people were around that they, they knew that Hank was creating a suit for Hope and all that. I mean, I'm sure maybe they did because uh, Hope said that they teamed up um, and they were doing other things, of course. But I, I think they just showed up at. At Scott's place and said, hey, Cap needs help. Do you want to go? And that was it. It was gone. There was no, hey, let's call Janet. Let's call, I mean, let's call Hope. Let's call Hank. See if everybody wants to get on board. I Do I think he could have had time? Yeah. But I, I think it was more urgent from Cap's team side of things. I, I like that. The stuff I was reading is they, they essentially looked at this movie needs to jump off from two movies, Ant-Man and Civil War. So – they both had to play into where we picked up from this movie and the repercussions, and that's why you know he's at odds and he's in the house arrest for for almost two years and is not supposed to have any communication with um, with Hope um, or, or Cap and his crew or, or, or Hank. So uh, from that aspect, I thought it was kind of better that this is this is a different type of sequel where you don't really have one. I guess maybe post Avengers is the same thing, but you don't just have one movie. You're you're sequel. You're becoming a sequel of. You're kind of having two to, yeah. to pull from. And and I like that they didn't have to go into detail about what happened at the end of Civil War when you saw Cap come and get Falcon out. That you wondered, well, what happened to Hawkeye? What happened to Ant Man? He probably looked at both of them and they're like, no, 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 we're going to stay. We got our families to worry about. We did this. This didn't work out so well. We're just going to hang out. Yeah, you got to figure it's either, either that or maybe they escape, but then they turn themselves in or something yeah. like that. But yeah, you know, and but I mean, I'm sure we're going to see Hawkeye in the next Avengers film. Oh, <laughs> yeah, he better be. He's not in the Mission Impossible because of it. Oh, that's right. Oh, really? Yeah, that's why he couldn't do. Uh, huh? Fallout. Matt, Matt, you want, you want, Matt, you want, Matt, you want to get the door? Uh, it's just UPS. <laughs> Flash, quiet. <laughs> I didn't realize your dog is named Flash. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, he's a basset hound <laughs> from the Dukes of Hazard. I always That's knew right. I wanted a basset hound named Flash. All right, let's talk. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's talk about the, quote, villain of the film, the ghost. So... Mm. Some listeners know that the ghost is actually in the comics is is a is a man who was in, featured in the Iron Man comic in the eighties, sort of this this freelance uh, in, sort of corporate espionage operative. Um, how do we th- how do we feel about the way the character was used in this film? I would say she's not the villain. Arguably, no, you could no, say I, Hank she, is. She, yeah, she's more she's more of a victim, I think, than anything else. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I like that. I don't know too much about the comic book version, but I kind of like the the variant of it. Um, I, you know, they did this with Killmonger and to some extent Thanos as well. Um, I, I like the um, the villains are kind of just villains in, in terms, but maybe they have a legitimate reason that you can sympathize of why they're doing this. Uh, I, I like that they kind of tweak things from what I've read. Uh, from the comics, the fact that it's a female didn't bother me at all. The kind of giving her more of a, a depth into uh, an origin. Um, I, I thought it was good. I thought they, you know, it wasn't the strongest villain in the MCU, but I thought it was one that it didn't. To some extent, I think Yellow Jacket seemed lame in the first one, and I wouldn't say she's as lame as Yellow Jacket was. 
Murd, what did you think of how the ghost was used? Ah, uh, well, um, pretty strong actually. I mean, she was a she's a character that's been shaped by uh, she's lived through a lot. She's suffered a lot. Um, you know, her desperation uh, just to, to save her own life, among other things, is, is fairly palpable. Um, you know, she's clearly a very resourceful figure, although her you know, she, she's been raised uh, by questionable people to do questionable things. She's been used her entire life. And you can kind of see the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the scars of all that on her face uh, as, as she uh, goes about this uh, last-ditch desperate effort to uh, neutralize these powers that have become a torture, a curse, and uh, a probable cause of death um, uh, by uh, playing out this uh, agenda she's now gotten to uh, steal the PIMS laboratory and uh, make use of it to, to neutralize her powers. Um, I thought the visual design is excellent. I mean, it, yeah. it, it manages to incorporate uh, a couple of the, the, the looks of the characters uh, exhibited in the comics over the years. Originally, he wore uh, goggles, and uh, later on, um, he exhibited uh, like a headgear with these weird little uh, blowing sensors all over it, and they sort of uh, combined the two. And just as a nod to the character's parentage in the movie, which is uh, not a detail they got from the comics, uh, the, the hood, helm, whatever you want to call it, uh, looks a little bit uh, egg-shaped because we learned in this movie that her father, you know, a little nod to longtime Marvel zombies, is the classic Ant-Man foe Elias Star, alias Egghead. Oh, Murd, I totally <laughs> missed that. Oh, I you did? I was wondering about who that was, and I completely never got to look it up. Son of a gun. That's, that's, I, you shocked me, Joe. I thought that would be a, that, an Easter egg, no pun intended, that both of you would have put in your baskets. <laughs> no, I, Murd, I, nope, I'm, I'm, I'm I missed. totally missed it. I, wow. I'm, I'm, I'm going to commit you know, symbolic uh, fanboy seppuku over that. Man. <laughs> Woo. Well done, brother. That, see, that's the deep cut. That's what we count on. Mm, that's happy to deliver. <laughs> and you know, as, as Matt said, and as, as you also implied, Chris, she's not really the villain in this movie. She's just one no. of several complicating factors that help to prolong the, the action of the plot and to delay that all-important rescue mission until the third act. Um, but yeah, she's she's got some depth. She's got some definite intensity. And uh, now that her major problem has been cured. Um, you know, with a little help from all of her friends, including the uh, excellent Lawrence Fishburne as Bill Foster. Uh, hopefully she'll go on to uh, other roles in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Maybe I'm hoping she'll be shared around between a few other different Marvel franchises and films. Maybe encounter Iron Man, who is, after all, the first character the ghost ever met in the Marvel comics. Indeed. And I, and I love how Bill Foster played into it, not only – because he was at odds with Hank, which so many people seem to be as as we're learning as these movies progress, but also that he took care of her as best he could and was working towards a cure and still by the end was accepted of Hank and by extension Janet then trying to figure out how to help her and get her even better. I, I have to say the de-aging of these actors is outstanding. Oh my uh, god! Yeah, yeah. I, I, I see although, yeah. although for some extent, I feel like Michelle Pfeiffer. They to age her. They just made her have gray hair because she almost looks exactly the same. Um, but I, it was it was very impressive, uh, I, and that's one of the things I really like about this franchise. Is uh, hopefully there's a third one. You're probably going to get even more uh, de aging to kind of you know fill some stuff in the backstory, in. and, and, and uh, kudos and that they should continue to do it. Am I right in at least in the first Ant-Man, in that beginning scene, that was not Michael Douglas playing that part. That was somebody else that they then 
superimposed all the de-aged Michael Douglas stuff on top of. That that is I, correct. I like, thought it was instance, Michael Douglas going through, and then they just threw a de-aging mix on him to, to. But it would have been him doing the whole acting thing, and it wasn't. Blew me away. I, from, from what I guess they have stand-ins. Oh, I didn't know to that. Do the okay. scenes, like for instance, uh, Bill Foster's, well, Lawrence Fishburne's stand-in for this movie was his son. Okay. Um, and then you had someone separate for um, for, um, for for Michelle Pfeiffer, and I think it was someone that they used in the first movie anyway. But they just brought her back because she had a similar body type as what they were mm-hmm. looking as Michelle Pfeiffer. And then I, they might have brought back the original stand-in for Michael Douglas as well. But then basically they just use old stock footage as they can from you know their catalog of prior movies to kind of build – to de-age them. Is the stuff it's, that it's, I've read. It's brilliant. Oh, yeah. No, it's seamless. I mean you believe it. Uh, and, and those scenes are vitally important like when they – the scene where – Michelle, where she's, I think she remembering Michelle Pfeiffer and hide, hide and seek in the closet. Is that yeah, yeah. You know, the, the cupboard. Scott's remembering it. That's right. Okay. Uh, how, how how funny though was the scene where Michelle Pfeiffer oh. was speaking through Scott? <laughs> that was oh, yeah. brilliant. They were, I was reading how they weren't sure how that would play. That it was kind of risky. That they thought would it seem too goofy, or would people actually buy it? Um, and they said, luckily, Paul Rudd did other something else with her before, which I don't remember. But he kind of could do some of her mannerisms to kind of give it more validity. Well, that's why I think Paul Rudd is such a great choice to play Scott Lang because he – you know, Paul Rudd is a very gifted actor and he he has great comedic chops. And, you know, but he he can also be – you know, there's pathos. He can be poignant. He can be – it's not – he's not just a goofball like on Anchorman. So – you know, when when I, I think he pulled that scene off really well, like because they were obviously very emotional. They're talking to their wife and mother who's been missing for years and years. But at the same time, you're also chuckling because it's Paul Rudd channeling Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh. But I, I thought I thought it worked very well. What what do we? All, I also really enjoyed the uh, pissing contest over who grew to a greater stature, uh, <laughs> Bill Foster or, or Scott Lang. That was yeah. That, that more makes me want. Him to be an action. If there's, I'm hoping there's a third one, maybe uh, Ant Man, the Wasp, and Goliath. But um, that they kind of bring him in, where you know you get to see some of him as as Goliath um, from the Goliath Project, which I, supposedly I really was referenced th- in Iron Man Two, which I have to go back and oh really? Check. Huh. Well, apparently he's telling Jarvis to pull all these certain files, and one of them is the Goliath Project. Oh, huh. I have to go back and look at that. Yeah. I um I fully expected Lawrence Fishburne to be in the costume at the end, all blown up to Goliath's size, mm-hmm. um, instead of nice. it just being empty. Oh, go ahead, Mer. What were you going to say? Oh, I was just uh, agreeing that uh, seeing him suited up as Goliath would have been cool. Yeah, and uh, I, I like the way he was used as kind of a mitigating factor, you know, like the Jiminy Cricket to uh, the, the the ghost's conscience um, mm-hmm. you know, like when she's. She's all set to go out and kidnap Cassie Lang for the second time in as many movies. Yeah. And I was a big fan of, of uh, Foster grabbing her and saying, no, I'm not being a party to the endangerment of any children. You touch that child and uh, our partnership is ended. So yeah, that's not, that's, yeah that, that's the filmmakers not saying to the audience, look, we, we went to that well one time in the last film and it was in poor taste. It's Besides which it's cliched. We're not doing it a second time. And besides that, it also helps to communicate that uh, Foster is, uh, in fact, a good man who is just abetting this uh, desperate young criminal uh, for doing, helping her to do bad things for good reasons. Yeah. Well, criminal or victim, but what, uh, I'm not too familiar with, with him in the books either. Would, is it similar, his relationship with Hank? Because I like the fact that they were 
kind of they, they were uh, each one. The way I read, they were supposed to be described as each one thinks they're the smartest person in the room when they're with each other. I don't know if they have any relationship in the comics. Mur, do, do you know of anything like that? I, I don't think so. Which two characters are we talking about? Bill, Bill uh, Foster and Hank Pym. Um, yeah. Um, they kind of like you, you guys keep uh, blanking out. I'm smarter than you. Uh, Bill Foster, Foster or Hank Pym, are those the two you're talking about? Yep. Yeah. yeah. In the comics, they kind of have a I'm smarter than you type of relationship back and forth, like in the movie. Uh, I'm not sure about that at all. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Poor kid. It's okay. What happened? <laughs> what were you doing? I'll, I'll be right back. All right. Okay. okay. See, ladies and gentlemen, you get you get the full spectrum of life here on Comic Geek. Oh yeah, yeah, boy, been there. <laughs> you heard the crash happen. <laughs> um, to, to answer Matt's question, I don't think they have any relationship in the comic at all. Uh, and in fact, Bill Foster, the Marvel Universe, is dead. <laughs> yeah, he was killed. In yeah. Civil, he was the sacrificial lamb in Civil War. Yep. How about um, the federal agent watching Scott? Jimmy Woo. Woo. Jimmy Woo. Yep. He's a Marvel Universe classic. You know, yes, he, he, he first appeared back in the 50s. He's, he's an older character than most of the other characters appearing in these movies. Oh, jeez. I didn't know that either. Of, uh, pos- very early positive representation of Asian Americans in comics, which is why I'm a little sorry that he was portrayed as such a goofball in this one. Murd, did, yeah. did he first appear in the Yellow Claw comic? That is correct. Yellow okay. Claw wow. number one. Okay. I, I appreciated some of his levity in the beginning, um, but it, it, it grew a little tired as it went on. Well, I thought was, he was he, a little was, bit forced. Yeah, he was definitely there as the. I mean, I, I love that actor. Um, oh, absolutely. He was he was there as like the bumbling, you know, opponent adversary for for Scott, who really couldn't handle him. Um, but but he's good hearted and well intentioned. But Murd's right in the comic. I mean, Jimmy Woo is, is a lethal shield agent. Like he's a serious um, guy you don't mess with. Um, and uh, you know, he's, he was a major. He's a major character in the, in the classic Shield stories of the 1960s with Steranko and so hmm. forth. So, but uh, again, it's it's still fun to, like to see them use these characters. Maybe they're, maybe they're not always the way we would prefer, but um, no, still it's still good. I like how they're reaching into every sort of nook and cranny of the Marvel universe and bringing that into the films in different ways. Yeah, I I, I wish there was out there. Maybe there is, and I'm just not finding it or seeing it. That when you sit in these rooms where they brainstorm all this stuff and they they throw out these names of characters to pull out and use in these movies that just must be such a fun room to sit in and watch be part of oh absolutely absolutely and, and paul rudd co-wrote the film he was one of the script writers yeah yeah uh, of the movie um so what, what do we think of his performance in the film uh, like we've talked a lot about everybody else but you know how do we think he does his ant-man in this movie i, oh, I, I like he's top-notch oh. I like him, but I thought his character seemed more stupid in this movie than in the first one. And I, I mean, I like the fact I like the fact that they portray him as the everyman who kind of um, he doesn't step up in the. Well, I, I should backtrack that when th- when when the shit hits the fan, 
he's not the guy who's thinking, I'm going to jump in there and save it. He's kind of just like, oh, man, I guess I got to be the one. Um, and he kind of falls into saving the day. And I thought he, he seemed more of a competent uh, person in the first one than in this one. This one I felt like he was more bumbling than, than he should have been. Well, I, I expected that, though, because in the first one, it was all about the heist, all about the electronics, the security systems, breaking in, getting around. That's his cat burglary. That's what he's good at. He's not good at quantum mechanics and biotechnology and everything that he was encountering. He's just being guided by Hank and Hope about what to do and just yeah, but they, trying to keep up. They established, I believe, he's an electrical engineer in the first one. So I think he would have – maybe not – because he was working on the uh, – on the uh, the regulator in the first one, and, and Hank said, "Don't mess with the regulator." So he at least had some type of mechanical um, understanding. But I think this was beyond anything they that he was able to grasp. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, God, that was funny. Um, I just think this was beyond what he was knowledgeable about. I think by the next one, if they still continue that, then that'll be a mistake. I think in this this time that happens between another Ant-Man movie or whatever comes next for Ant-Man and the Wasp, he should, by that time, have a grasp of what's going on. A lot more than, than this one. I think, because um, he's such a big-hearted character, and, and I agree with what Matt was saying, like, he's not, or what you both said, he's not, he's not, you know, Steve Rogers, you know, the, the square-jawed, heroic figure who's, who's always going to be there and, and reassure and inspire people. He, he's a guy who kind of fell into this in a, in a way. And uh, yet he ultimately, like, just like in Civil War, when he says, you know what, I'm going to increase my size even though it might kill me, <laughs> mm-hmm. and he does it, you know, he's – and I'm just, I'm just wondering if, again, based on that, that, that first post credit scene, if he's going to pl- actually play a very important role in, in, in the next Avengers movie. Uh, oh, I cannot I reveal anything I've read. What's that, Matt? I cannot reveal anything I have read. I, I appreciate theories, that. But... I appreciate that. <sighs> Well, barring barring that and Matt not saying anything, I also was kind of thinking with that scene, once it ended, so I would think Bill Foster knows they're all there doing what they're doing, that maybe he would come and get Scott out of it, and that Did, would move forward. Didn't Janet say to avoid those certain holes at a time warps? It could be. So would he necessarily have to come out? No. No, he wouldn't, because I also thought about if they get thrown back in time to fix everything in in, in the next Infinity War. Well, with the with the with the in, Infinity Gems, any, anything is possible. Yeah. So. <laughs> Murd, what do you think of Paul Rudd in this film? Well, not much to say, really. Uh, played uh, the comedy uh, to the hilt, effectively. Uh, he uh, showed us a hard luck hero character that I cared about. It's about all uh, there is to it. And why did why in this why did you like this movie a bit more than than the first one? Well, I don't know. The, the first one, I remember uh, Danny and I agreeing about this when we did the review for the first one, but it just kind of felt cheap to me. And by cheap, I don't even mean like the effects budget. I just meant like the narrative values. It, it just felt like a disposable. Like a B-movie genre film, like instant basic cable fodder, disposable and forgettable. This one, I think, is going to leave its stain on my mind a little better. It's uh, like a little more thought went into its construction. See, now, now I I have to rethink this a little bit, but I kind of thought that of Iron Man 2. And I thought this was much better than 
Both Ant-Mans are better than Iron Man 2 was. Funny you should mention that. I don't know if you guys looked at my post on the forum, but I offer this. <laughs> Peyton Reed said one of the issues that he had with the first movie is he was kind of picking up the pieces that were left when uh, Wright was no longer associated with it. So huh. he felt Yellow Jacket was very much like Obadiah Stane in, in the first Iron Man movie. Uh, not that he doesn't like the character, he doesn't like the actor, but he felt that whole no- notion felt very much Iron Man the first Iron Man movie. So this one, he has more input on it, more controlling factor. So I offer this. Uh, Okay, so they introduced a new character to team up with the established character, uh, Wasp, and then Iron Man 2 was War Machine. Uh, The Sins of the Father created the villain, so you can look at uh, Howard Stark with uh, Vanko and Hank with uh, Ghost's father. Mm -hmm. You have a criminal businessman, uh, who would wear uh, a light-colored suit at one point, which would give you um, – yeah, shit, who was the millionaire, the rich guy, the uh, millionaire in Iron Man 2? Hammer? Justin Hammer? Hammer. Hammer. you got yeah. Hammer, and in this one you have Simon Birch. Uh, you have a malfunctioning suit, uh, which would be the Mark the Mark, uh, Mark II when it got controlled, over, taken over by um, – Mickey Rourke's character, Mickey Rourke, yeah. Mickey Rooney, Mickey Rourke, yeah. Uh, and then you also have Scott's work in progress. You have a repurposed older suit, which would be the Mach 2 becomes the War Machine armor. And in the original uh, Ant-Man suit, the regulator is used as a tracker. And somebody is trying to steal superior technology, which would be Birch trying to steal uh, Pym's lab. And you had a Hammer trying to steal uh, Stark's tech. So – he had more control, so uh, Reed had more control in this one, and he essentially made Iron Man 2. <laughs> That's funny. I don't know if I would have made that comparison right away. Matt, as always, your keen detecting skills are always welcome <laughs> on this program. Outstanding. i got to contribute something. Oh, come on. <laughs> you always do, sir, always. you got the, you got the screaming kid. Come on, you got the UPS delivery. <laughs> Flash barking. So... What do we think of – I found this very interesting. So they had Michelle Pfeiffer. She was in, in the, the quantum realm since the 1980s, right? So what do we think of the fact that uh, – clearly she was – I don't know if thriving is the right word, but she was living there. Yeah. Um, do you think they'll explore that further in some way? Like are there other – I mean there were, there were sentient – there were creatures there. Like when Hank Pym goes into those different – Creatures you saw as he was moving through in his ship, and yeah, I mean, what do we think about that? Like, do we th- like? Do, do, she, do you think she comes out of this with some kind of new awareness or powers, or that they haven't ex- ex- revealed? Well, yet? she's clearly, got new she clearly has yeah, powers. Yeah. yeah, she can do the laying on of the hands and do the quantum healing for the ghost. After all, right? Um, personally, I got the impression that the filmmakers do not want to spend too much time focusing on the quantum realm at all. Okay. You know, I could. I mentioned earlier that they had pretty much the entire script uh, is just, as I mentioned earlier, a whole, an elaborate system of complicating factors, just uh, carefully crafted and choreographed contrivances to delay getting to the rescue mission that's supposed to be at the whole point of the exercise. Uh, mainly because they didn't want to spend the whole movie with, and they easily could have, have spent the whole movie just uh, with uh, Scott and/or. Hank and or Hope exploring the quantum realm and looking for Janet, maybe encountering the Cosmosians or somebody while they're down there, or even Commander Arcturus Ran and his crew, <laughs> if that were possible. 
Um, but uh, I guess they probably thought that would make it too much like a Guardians movie or a Doctor Strange movie, and uh, they didn't want to stray too far from the action comedy heist genre, which, as I said earlier, is kind of the niche they're going for with these Ant-Man movies. So they just put it off until the last act where Hank goes in there alone and finds his wife. And So I, I got the impression that they did not want to spend too much time there. Probably they didn't have the budget necessarily to spend an entire movie exploring a, a head-trippy, psychedelic, other-dimensional realm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't think they're really that interested in showing us that much more of the quantum realm. Though I'm sure since the movie ends with Scott trapped there, we'll see more of it in the future. Uh, as to what we're talking about the quantum realm, though, uh, the moment when uh, Hank and Janet are finally reunited, <laughs> I went to see this movie with my dad, as I often do with these Marvel movies. And uh, <laughs> the first thing he had to say when uh, she showed up, he just scoffed and said, what has she been eating for the last 30 years? <laughs> Yeah, well, that thought went through my head, too. You know, it is ironic that you mentioned that this, uh, Chris, that this version of Janet Van Dyne isn't too concerned with her makeup, because when she takes her helmet off, she's clearly wearing an awful lot of makeup. So I'm, I'm thinking to myself, what, is there some kind of quantum Walgreens down there where she's been going to, <laughs> to buy her cosmetics just to keep herself pretty for when, you know, Papa Pim finally decides to show up and take her home? It, uh, it kind of took me out of the scene a little bit. I mean, she's, this, this, this place, it changes you, and it just seemed that she was a little bit too put together physically, cosmetically, and mentally to, uh, to, to have really been living in a place like that for 30 years. And that's why I'm wondering, and I mean, you, your point aside, Mark, because you may, be, may very well be right, we'll see, but if they ever are going to explore that a little bit further, I mean, I'm a huge Michelle Pfeiffer fan. She's always one of my favorite yeah. uh, performers. So I was, I was just thrilled because she, she doesn't act as much as she used to. And I read an interview with her. She's, she's getting back into acting now because, you know, props to her. She kind of left it to raise her children. Um, you know, she was in Murder, the Orient Express, which I had not seen yet as, as well. But I'm sure, I'm sure we're going to see her in more projects uh, going forward, which I'm, I'm thrilled about. But yeah. um, what did you guys think of seeing these two, you know, you know, classic actors, Michael Douglas and Michelle Pfeiffer? How do you think they, they did in the film? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I thought it was fun. Um, I, these are actors I grew up with and, and watched from – I mean the first time I ever saw Michelle Pfeiffer was watching Grease 2 on HBO. Ha! Uh, I mean uh, – <laughs> How youth. <laughs> and then Michael Douglas, gosh, that had to be Romancing the Stone. Oh, classic. I mean both fantastic fun movies. Uh, I've watched them both tons of times over the years. Uh, it, it was, it's a lot of fun to see these 80s actors that I've grown up with get some props and be in these movies. It, it was funny. One of the uh, interviews that Paul Rudd did, he got asked the question, what's your go-to uh, karaoke song? And he said, if Michelle Pfeiffer's there, anything from the fabulous Baker boys? Yeah. Said, oh, that's right. She was in that movie. Yeah, yeah. She's tremendous in that film. Oh. And she uh, was I, in there with Obadiah Stane. <laughs> I, that's right. I, I like I, I liked it. I thought it was uh, seeing them too. I, I know again reading stuff. Uh, this was uh, uh, Reed's ideal actress to play a Janet. Since the first movie, the actress that he had as a stand-in in the Wasp costume has similar eyes. This was his ideal casting, and he took some convincing to get her to do it, and she did it. And I think uh, it paid off. I know Evangeline Lilly was hoping that that would be her mom uh, as well. Um, she, she has some chops. She's been in this genre before. Uh, playing Catwoman, yeah, and, and it, yeah. it didn't seem too much like she just, I mean, again, we only see her a little bit, but it didn't seem like she was just retreading. It seemed like she never did anything 
in a in this genre genre once uh, before. So I, I like that. I didn't see something old coming back. Well, and, and and to take that a step further, I know this. There's like no way this would ever happen. But now, given all these movies out there and all these people that are in it, somehow I'd love to see what what is it? Meryl Streep from Guardians and um, maybe Glenn Close. Glenn, uh, Glenn, Glenn Close, Close from Guardians. Michael Douglas from this. Michael Keaton from Spider Man, and now Michelle Pfeiffer, who've all been in movies together. Uh, especially Michael Keaton and Michelle Pfeiffer being in Batman Returns. I'd love to see them somehow get some of these actors together in some Marvel movie and make some kind of snide joke, although it would be extremely forced. It would make me smile from ear to ear. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. What, um, to kind of go go back to the the post-credits scene, what do you guys, because I kind of gave my theory, what do you guys think of that scene? Like, I mean, like you said, they wanted to show, you know, the effects of Infinity War in a way at the end of the movie. But do you think that scene's going to have massive ramifications? Like, because he's going in there and he was, he was exploring it. Was he? What, what, what was he trying to put in the container? I don't remember actually. Like, was it was the, the healing energy. the quantum particles that that heal so that they can get something more stable for ghosts. Okay, that's right. So, and and I think it could go either way. It could be insignificant, where it's as simple as Bill Foster going in there and saying, "Hey, I haven't heard anybody in an hour. What's going on?" Oh, wait, flip a switch and he comes out. Or it could be him finding, uh, doing something he's not supposed to, and going through one of those vortexes and ending up back, who knows how many years, and meeting up with some of the other guys and going forward from there. Well, I, I don't want to comment too much on it because, again, I, I've been reading a lot of stuff and I don't want to. But um, I was surprised that that wasp. That, I mean that um, that hope vanished as well. I thought she would be one of them that you know maybe, um, but all three of them vanished. I, I wasn't expecting all three of them to. I thought maybe two out of the four. Um, yeah, me too. Or maybe Bill being there at the end, and he was the only one who who, who didn't vanish, trying to figure out what happened. Um, but I was just surprised to see basically um, Scott Lang, you know, Lang by himself at, at the end. I was surprised by that too, Matt. But I guess they wanted to make the audience feel like Scott's in mortal peril now because no one's there to yeah, bring yeah. him out. Um, but I think your Bill Foster theory is, is there's a lot of a lot of oomph behind it. So, do we have any other uh, comments? Fact, go ahead, go ahead, Martin. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I think the fact that Scott is in the quantum realm is what's going to be most significant when we get around to the next movie, uh, the next mm-hmm. Avengers movie. And I, I do think that the Bill Foster rescue theory might have. It is, it is, it's a sound one, but I think the fact that he's outside of the regular Marvel Cinematic Universe and therefore possibly outside the Infinity Gen's influence might be a key thing to the uh, remaining hero strategy against Thanos. They've got a man yeah. on the outside, as it were. Yeah. That, that's that's a good point, Murd. God, I just got chills. Ooh, fantastic. <laughs> um, any other thoughts, any other aspect of the film before we kind of wrap it up? Well, I also loved the inclusion of Scott's sidekicks, where they're making their own business. Oh, Michael Payne and the rest. Yeah, they're fun. Yeah, um, that, that was always fun. I was kind of hoping they would figure out a way to work them in there. Again, a little bit forced, but it made sense for what they were doing and, and progressing that that part of the story along as well. Um, you know what? I, I, I like them, but I felt like they were just kind of thrown in there. That they Oh, they were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, again, I, I like them, but I, I, I felt as though if they, if they weren't in the movie, I don't think we would have lost this step. Or even if we oh, just had Michael no. Pena, because he played more of an important role out of the three of them, obviously. Yeah. But um, I, I just kind of – and I read one review who said that uh, T.I. basically just phoned in this uh, this job. 
um, <laughs> with the amount that he had to do. So yeah. I, I was just like, yeah, that's kind of what it felt like. But it, but I at least yeah. like that we got to revisit uh, of all the forced jokes. I like that we got to revisit him rambling on and telling backstory <laughs> and overlaying everybody talking with his voice right. coming through. <laughs> yep. They yeah. spend the of consciousness uh, voiceover or flashback sequence. Yeah. yeah. I'm all business. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the other thing I enjoyed, I should have mentioned earlier, uh, the great character actor Walton Goggins. Oh, he's amazing. Uh, he's a great – that guy can do any role. Like he's been in a wide variety of film and television, um, everything from The Shield to The Hateful Eight right. to Django Unchained and so forth. But yeah. uh, I, I, what I liked about him – and I, I, I'd like to get Murd's take on this because if you know Ant-Man's rogues gallery, what, what there is of it, it's really goofy overall. And, and I think they <laughs> kind of – I think they kind of are, are – Murd, do you think they're kind of tipping the hat to that with, with the villains they're kind of using? In a sense, um, I missed part of what you said there, Chris. So what I, what I was saying was, as we know, a lot of Ant-Man's villains in the comics are kind of goofy, so like the Living Eraser and you know so forth. Mm-hmm. So do you think that like, do you think they're they're sort of tipping the hat to that in these films with with sort of the quote caliber of villains that he's fighting, essentially? Uh, didn't really occur to me. Um, I know that Sonny Birch is I – mean, he's from the comics, just barely. I mean, he was like a mm-hmm. very minor Iron Man supporting character from a bunch of years ago. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think if they were going to poke fun at Ant-Man's rogues gallery, I think they'd do it a little bit more sharply than, than that. I mean, they'd throw in some – the phrase living eraser into the movie somehow. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of hard for – oh, Whirlwind. There's another one. That, that's – if there's going to be a third movie, I think they'd be fools not to find a way to work him in there somewhere. That's true. Although, Mer, I'm, still, I'm still holding out for the Living Eraser. Come on. <laughs> you will be both, Chris. I, I did a little bit of research on Birch, and what I picked up said he worked for Crosstech, which I was kind of assuming was from the first Ant-Man movie, but only in the comics. Like, that's what it would have become, changing Pimtech to whatever's um gotta forget his name um darren cross darren cross to, to his company and somebody had posted about it alluding to maybe oscorp was coming in since spider-man's in the mix because this guy worked for oscorp too or maybe that was just supposition of something they'd like to see i don't know well i was gonna say a sidebar is they never revealed who bought the um no. The old Avengers building could that have been? I mean, everyone thought Fantastic Four, and I guess potentially it could be. But you know, could that be Oscorp? It, it could be Oscorp. I, I thought either Oscorp, and and at the time that they filmed it, I don't think it was meant to be the Fantastic Four. I think if that happened, that would be a happy coincidence that they could work that in there. That would be a good retcon to do. But I did think Oscorp initially. I certainly wouldn't. I'd be happy to see Norman Osborn done properly. Yeah, um, but you know, who knows? But but <laughs> given what's happening with with Fox and possibly bringing everybody in like that yeah. in a couple of years, I wouldn't be. I I would think that would be a a natural thing to say. Ah, oh, well, we sold it to this guy Reed. He's he all sciencey and the equipment's perfect for him. And here it's Fantastic Four. Yeah, absolutely. Any uh, any uh, sort of closing thoughts, gentlemen, on the film? Before we rate it? Oh, <laughs> all right. Funny story that I think if years go by and long after I've departed this world, if my youngest son, Matt, uh, listens to this, hopefully he'll chuckle and remember it. Um, I got to see the movie twice in the same weekend because 
my older boy has a part-time job, so he was working, Ooh. and I was too impatient to wait to go see it. So I took <laughs> Matt to go you, see it. Son. <laughs> I took Matt to go see it on Saturday, and then I took Ben to see it Monday night. And we're sitting there watching it Saturday, me and Matt, Matt and I, whatever. And, You're uh, son, Matt. And yeah, and. It gets to a couple parts, probably the restaurant scene with Evangeline Lilly kicking ass and, and really wasping as much as possible. And he nudges me and he turns and he goes, she's kind of hot, isn't she? <laughs> and I, I just had to burst out laughing. I'm like, Matt, you have no idea. Um, just from what I've ever watched of Lost and other things she's been I said, yeah, Matt, yeah, you're, you're right. <laughs> Big grin on his face. <laughs> How old is Matt now? Uh, fourteen. Ah, yes. Wow. Ah, yes. Just, just, uh, just made me laugh. <laughs> One of the things, uh, again, behind the scenes stuff that I thought uh, that I liked and I can kind of relate to. Um, and I, I think I, Adam, remember, I remember Adam commenting on this when I mentioned it in the first movie is, uh, when Paul Rudd was writing, you know, co-writing this and the Cass Cassidy scenes. Hold on, sweetie. Uh, he said that he would tell his daughter, who's about Cassie's age, "You're the real Cassie." <laughs> um, and and that, that's one of the things, you know, having fee that I kind of relate to is kind of we don't have quite those conversations. But I thought it was neat how the opening he had that whole elaborate like, break in oh, scene. And boy, then, was that you know, great. Um, and I just kept thinking the amount of time it would take to construct something like that. It, 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 I, I just can't believe it. Well, it was under well, but it's kind of cool. He has two years. <laughs> yeah. In my head, I'm thinking, hmm, how can I do that? <laughs> no, I that was fantastic in this movie. Pardon? She's got more of a personality, and she's uh, not being kidnapped. Oh, yeah. Well, it, to... I did like how she was talking about herself as his partner, <laughs> and he was like, well, I actually was talking about hope. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was kind of neat as well. And and even took it to, to – well, while that was good because we kind of understood what he was talking about, but it was nice to see not only him disappoint her a little bit, but then also say, well, if I did let you do that, I wouldn't be a good father, just like what – Hank was trying to do in the last movie by not letting Hope do that because if he would have just said, yeah, you go do that, that wouldn't have been what he wanted as a father trying to protect his daughter. Yeah, and I thought I thought the little girl was very well cast. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I, I love when she said, in, like, are you going to be Ant-Man again? Like, you've, you felt the bond between them. It, it was, it was yeah. well done. All right, gentlemen, any other? Maybe go ahead, Mert, I'm sorry. Maybe. By the third movie, she'll suit up and become stature, like I she was in the comics. I was thinking that too. Anyway, um, go ahead, Mur. Go ahead. I had a kind of a large one, actually. Um, it's uh, uh, forgive me if this reopens a can of worms and uh, brings us back to a, a topic we've already tread over. But um, just to clarify, one of my first remarks, actually, when I said that uh, the movie needed uh, more wasp. Um, what I meant there is that uh, – and I'm not necessarily talking about screen time because uh, Hope Van Dyne is definitely present and prominent in this movie. Uh, but I think the movie needed to be more about that character. I mean for all that uh, she's, uh, she's got equal billing now, and uh, I still feel like the movie was primarily from Scott Lang's perspective. I mean the story unfolds from his POV. It's a lot of stuff about his daughter, his ex-wife, his house arrest, and his troubles with the FBI – uh, his friends at the ex-con security solutions company. And uh, meanwhile, Hope, we see almost nothing about her private life. Like uh, we, we see lots of the uh, scenes with Scott without Hope, but mm, far fewer scenes of Hope without Scott. And uh, I'd kind of like to see what, what, you know, what are her friends like? What's her daily routine? While Scott is uh, drumming along with the Partridge family theme and learning close-up magic, what is she doing? Yeah. Well, 
<laughs> you see, I, I might throw, I mean, I know we're running along here, but I might throw in there, that's the assuming that she has those things. I was kind of under the impression for the last two years she's been in hiding with her father. So mm-hmm. any of the scenes that we would see of just her would, would be have been building. her and her dad doing the stuff, which, you know, to, set, to further yeah. that bond would be interesting. Um, to some extent, I look at it as, again, they're, they're equal partners. But if you've ever seen Big Trouble in Little China, mm-hmm. everything's through Jack Burton's eyes. But John Carpenter said he's basically the sidekick to, to Wang. Wang's yeah. really the, the, the main. So it, it's kind of neat that you're not seeing necessarily the lead person. Um, you're just seeing like the, the sidekick. And again, I know I said before, they're not sidekicks to either one of them. They're equal billing. But there ought to be equal weight placed on their perspective. Is what I'm the, the thing, I agree. The thing with that, Adam, that I'd like to see is her disappointment when they found out that he was caught. And did something without telling them. That's that. That is a part I would like to see is is their disappointment in him at first and and their frustration and anger with him instead of just alluding to it. In yeah. Conversation. Yeah. Yeah. It I, seems I, like there's a lot of things involving hopes, emotions that are just alluded to as opposed to actually shown in the way that Scott's emotions are. That's. All I want is to see her depth explored a little more, because as it is, they did a great job of showing what a strong female character she is. I mean, we've all com- commented on her fighting ability, her, her capability, her no-nonsense attitude, but yeah, you know, th- her emotional range is somewhat limited to what you see during those combat situations. I would like to see Hope in her private, quiet moments. And, and I think the, the closest you got to that is when she saved Scott and pulled him out of the water. Yeah. I think Matt's point is well taken, too, because I think that's symbolized by the building. Like, they, they're constantly making it into the rolling suitcase, because they've got to move from place to place to stay ahead of the authorities, mm-hmm. um, essentially. But I, I also think Murda's a great point. I mean, and hopefully, because Evangeline Lilly is a great actress, so hopefully oh, yeah. we'll, we'll yeah. see more of her. Now, I mean, obviously, the Avengers film is going to be this massive, epic thing, so, but, um, you know, that we'll, we'll see more of her developed, hopefully, in, in a third film. Yeah, so, I agree with that. Hopefully, there's a third film. Indeed. I, I, I would hope so. How, 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 so. how is this movie done financially? I didn't check that. Do we know that? I, that I, I don't think know. It, it broke 300 million worldwide, and I think it's on pace to basically do the exact same amount as the first movie. Okay. Hmm. All right. Um, I, I think that part of that is because Skyscraper uh, tanked. Oh, you, you, mean, oh. you mean Die Hard with Dwayne Johnson? Uh, die Hard with <laughs> – uh, uh, Die Hard and Ferning t- – um, Inferno Tower. Tower, 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 Tower Inferno. Yeah. Inferno. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Did that movie tank? I, I wasn't paying attention. Oh, yeah. It, it's, it didn't do nearly what they projected. I think this is one of his lowest like opening movies. Oh. Yeah. I, but, but I mean, who who didn't see those trailers? I mean, not the sideboard, but who didn't see those trailers and think, oh, this is just Die Hard? Which yeah, that's what rocking. I thought. First, you first might as well just do a remake of it. Yeah. I mean, and I like Dwayne Johnson, but. Uh, oh, I do too. Yeah. You know. Oh well, he he he'll he'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, he's raising her for work. Are you guys ready for ratings? Yeah. Yep. Freckin' swears, Matt, go ahead. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm teetering between three and a half and four, but uh, I'm feeling. I'll go with a. Nah, I'll go with three and a half. Shane. Oh, easily four and a half. Four. I really liked it. Mert. Uh, flat three. <laughs> I'll uh. I love you, Murd. Um, I'll, I'll give it. I'll, I'll give. I'll give. I'll give it like a low four. I, I really enjoyed it as well. I love. I love the characters. I love. I love the dynamic they had between the different actors. It was. It was a lot of fun. 
So, and I, I'm interested to see how they use him again in, in the next Avengers film. So, I just realized, gentlemen, uh, and this is my fault, we forgot to do a sponsor for this episode. I thought you were going to say you forgot to record. I'm incompetent, but not quite colossally incompetent. So, uh, we'll, in our next episode, we'll make up for that and do a couple, a couple sponsors. And uh, if everything works out, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to be an episode, a special episode in the studio. That's all I'm going to say about that. Ooh. Okay. So, uh, does anybody have any uh, information to take us out, or we, we don't have that available? I've got so. the outro. Oh, Shane. Clutch. Go for it, brother. <laughs> Visit us at comicgeekspeak.com to send us an email. The address is comicgeekspeak at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, the number is 267-702-6642. Stop by thecomicforums.vanillaforums.com and let us know what you all think of Ant-Man and the Wasp, although I'm sure there's threads out there. I know I read a couple things weeks ago. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook. Thanks to everyone who contributes to the show. We appreciate it and could not do it without you. And as always, we are uniting the world's mightiest heroes, one listener at a time. All right. Adios. Laser beam.